Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to this week's episode of The Bible Breakdown. I don't know what we all did last week when there wasn't an episode. I apologize for not recording one last week for our lesson. Uh, we, As many of you know, I just got back from kids camp, so unfortunately, the administrative work of kids camp kept me occupied last week, and fortunately, The Bible Breakdown had to take a week off, but... Even though it's a little later than normal, I'm happy to be back um, talking about what we're going through in the Gospel Project. So today we are going to be in Acts 15, uh, talking about the Jerusalem Council. Um, if I do want to apologize in advance, if my dog should find the need to interrupt this podcast, usually I don't do it here at home for the very reason of avoiding him. So... If you hear some sniffing or some barking or some whining, I do apologize for Moe's, our dog, but he's sleeping right now. Hopefully he'll stay asleep. But like I said, we are going to be in Acts 15 today. We're going to be in that chapter in, in about the first 20 or so verses. Um, so if you want to turn there, you won't find yourself flipping a ton. Uh, but like I said, this chapter is titled probably in most of your Bibles as the Jerusalem Council. And so this is right on the heels of Paul and Barnabas's missionary journey. And remember, in this section of Acts, a lot of what we've been talking about is how do Gentiles enter into Christianity? So Christianity, we know from Scripture, is the fulfillment of Judaism, that um, the elements of the Mosaic Law, the elements of Judaism were ultimately a reflection of what Christ was going to do and the sacrifice he was going to make. And so for people who are already part of the Jewish faith, it's a little more natural for them to enter into Christianity, even though, of course, there is hesitancy and there's confusion and there's questions. They at least, the ones who are believers, understand, yes, this is the progression of my faith. Now, I have to still wonder how I interact with my former faith, but I recognize that Christianity is where my Jewish faith is moving me. But how do you integrate people who were not part of the Jewish community, that were not part of the Jewish faith. And that's really what we've been dealing with a lot in Acts. Um, and it's very much a uh, cultural, racial, religious issue that they're wrestling with. And so this is really a huge uh, turning point. I think I say that every time we read a chapter of this section of Acts. There's a lot of big turning points. This is one of the most official turning points in terms of how the church is going to view it from a what could we say, maybe an official standpoint, like having a statement on it, basically. So they're going to form this council and councils in church history are often where major decisions are made. You may have heard of things like the Council of Nicaea, Council of Constantinople, things like that. Those are a little less familiar there um, from the post-biblical era. But this council is very important for how Gentiles are going to be integrated into the Christian community. So uh, like I said, Acts 14 goes through Paul and Barnabas's missionary journey where they saw lots of Gentiles come to the faith, lots of people receiving the spirit. They uh, went out from Antioch, went in a nice loop, shared the gospel a lot, had lots of adventures, looped their way back, um, helped to strengthen the churches they'd founded, electing leadership. And now we're at the apex of the religious community, which is in Jerusalem. And there's some questions that are coming up. So I'm going to start by reading verses one through six. And we'll jump in from there, starting with verse one. It says, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, the 
people are coming from Judea to Antioch. So that's where uh, Paul and Barnabas stopped. So when it says they came down from Judea, they came to Antioch, which had a largely, uh, it had a mixed population of Jewish and Gentile uh, believers. So continuing in verse two, it says, and after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. So the situation here is that there's some people from Judea and there's some people from the party of the Pharisees that have become believers. So they're not current uh, Pharisees in the same way that they were when uh, Jesus was alive and he was rebuking them. But they are from that party. And so you can imagine they have some very firmly rooted ideas about how to live. Remember, the Pharisees are teachers of the law. They are very into the law. That's their thing. That's what sets them apart. So you can imagine they're not just like, oh, yeah, let's throw this out the window. And when we see that Gentiles are a part of it and they're not keeping any of our customs, we have a little bit of a problem with that. So we can assume that these men who came down from Judea are at least of a similar uh, ideology, even if they're not of the Pharisee party. But they come and Paul and Barnabas debate with them a little bit. Um, and then basically the decision is made that they need to gather together in Jerusalem, bring all the apostles, all the elders together. The elders would be leadership in the churches um, to decide what what is the deal. Do they have to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses or do they not? And circumcision is one of the primary things that they're going to be concerned with here. So circumcision uh, was the identifying marker of the Jewish people. So it started with Abraham and up until that point and even Till now, um, devout Jews, circumcision is their sign as a people that is set apart. So this is a millennia old tradition is not an appropriate word to use. And it's a, it's not strong enough, honestly. It's more than a tradition. It's an almost an identity. This is a millennia old identity that the Jewish people have. And so these Jewish believers want the Gentiles to be circumcised. And in addition to that, they're probably going to be concerned, and we're going to see how this plays out here in a bit, but with dietary laws and idol worship. So wanting them to at least be maybe fully adhered to at least be sensitive to the Jewish dietary laws, which would involve a few things. Um, again, like if you think about kosher now, people, there's kosher diets and that's things are prepared a certain way, certain foods are avoided. And then idol worship, which that's a pretty easy one. I think we're all I think they were probably all on the same page with the idol worship, but we don't want them worshiping idols anymore. So those are going to be the main things that the party of the Pharisees, these men who came down from Judea are concerned with. They are going to want the Gentile believers to be circumcised. They're going to want them to at least maintain sensitivity to the dietary law, if not totally adhere to it. And they're going to want them to abstain from anything that is related to idol worship. So they gather the council to discuss what's going to be done You've got kind of on one side, Paul and Barnabas, who have seen what the Lord is doing amongst the Gentiles. And then you've got these people who are hearing about it, but wondering, well, how does my Jewish faith now impact their faith in Christianity, which is the fulfillment of my Jewish faith? So starting back in chapter 15 with verse 7, uh, Peter is going to make a statement. 
It says, And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. So Peter is kind of, he's what he's referencing here is his story from Acts 10, when he uh, has this vision, Cornelius, this um, guy who it fears God, um, has this vision and is told to seek out Peter. Peter gets this vision that he should receive his people. And ultimately, Peter ends up sharing the gospel with Cornelius and his whole household, probably a lot of his friends too, and they believe and receive the Holy Spirit. And Peter is um, very surprised by this. Um, he's kind of acting in faith, but he doesn't really know what God's going to do with that. But he sees that they receive the Holy Spirit. So that's kind of the, what he's re, uh, referring to here when he says um, that, he bore witness to them that he had the opportunity by his mouth. He says the Gentiles to hear the word of the gospel. So that's the story he's return, referring to in Acts 10. We talked about it several weeks ago, um, but yeah, he preached the gospel. They received the Holy spirit. So Peter's recognizing also here, this is very important here in verse 10. He's recognizing that they cannot keep the whole law. He says, why, should we, are we putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? So he's referring to the law and basically saying, we can't expect the disciples. And when he's referring to the disciples, he means people who have recently been uh, converted to Christianity that have believed in Jesus, not to the original 12 disciples. He's saying, why should we ask them to try to keep this whole law when for all of our nation's history, we haven't been able to keep it either, that we haven't been able to bear it on our own, that we haven't been able to keep it perfectly. It's only by God's grace that we're here. So this is a big recognition um, by Peter, especially in light of these, uh, this party of the Pharisees, this recognition that we weren't able to do this. We weren't able to keep this. That's why we experienced exile. That's why the Pharisees created these man-made laws to protect God's law so their idea was if we create man-made laws that are even more strict than God's law, then hopefully we won't have any reason to ever break God's law. But what was the problem with that? They fell into legalism. They ignored the needs of people. They put a heavy burden on others. So even in that attempt, they really worked the wrong way. So Peter's recognizing that uh, in light of what Christ has done, expecting the Gentile believers to hold to the law that not even seasoned people in the Jewish faith could keep, would just be an unnecessary burden, especially in light of what Christ has done, that Christ came to fulfill the law, that he was the ultimate sacrifice, that the Holy Spirit is ultimately the one who gives us the ability to follow God, to do the will of God. So after Peter uh, says this, um, then they allow some time for Paul and Barnabas to share. And it's kind of in the same vein of what happened with Peter. They're sharing about their experience with the Gentiles and what they've seen God do. And that's kind of a testimony to we think this is what God is doing amongst the Gentiles and that we should lean into this, and that we shouldn't pull back and expect them to hold the law. So then in picking up in verse 13, uh, James, and this is, again, we talked about this a few weeks ago. This is James, the brother of Jesus. So it would be Mary and Joseph's uh, biological son. 
whereas so he'd be Jesus quote unquote half brother. It's kind of weird. He's he's the brother of Jesus. He is Mary and Joseph's son. They grew up together. This is not James the apostle, the brother of John, who has at this point been killed for his faith. So this James, the brother of Jesus, who is the leader of the Jerusalem church, has a high amount of influence. And this is what he's going to say on the matter. Sorry, in verse 13. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, who has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. And the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So what James is doing here is he's saying Simeon, who's Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. So he uses this to take from them a people for his name. He's using that um, in this quotation he's going to have here in verses 16 and 17. So this comes from the book of Amos. How many of y'all read Amos? Be honest. It's okay. Amos is a very, very random book to a lot of us. Um, It has a lot of chapters actually for one of the minor prophets. This is Amos chapter nine that um, he's reading from verses 11 and 12. Um, but what he's pointing out is what we're seeing here is exactly what is prophesied in the Old Testament, specifically in this instance through Amos. And so James is seeing that God is calling a people for his name from amongst the Gentiles. And for that reason, he says, we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, looking at this prophecy that's in Amos. And so what he suggests instead is that they send a letter. And in this letter, they don't tell them, hey, you need to get circumcised. You need to follow all these dietary laws. You need to do all these things. And you can imagine, like, let's be honest, if you're an adult Gentile man and you're being asked to be circumcised, you can imagine there'd be a little bit of resistance to that. I don't blame them. And uh, I think that James realizes and some and some of these other brothers like Peter and Paul and Barnabas are realizing like that's a lot to ask of someone, not only because of the obvious painful situation, but also when a person's circumcised, that basically means now you are supposed to keep the whole law. So that's a symbolism of joining the Jewish community, which would be to hold to the law. So it's not just a painful act for its own sake, but it has implications, too. And so. This quote from Amos 9, James is using it to affirm that this idea of the Gentiles being grafted into God's plan is not new. And for that reason, it's not expected that there would be people that would be part of God's family that would not be from the Jewish faith. And so instead, they're going to send this letter and they're not going to ask these big things. They're not going to ask them to keep the whole law. What they're going to lay out is four things. So first is going to be meat sacrificed to idols. So I'm going to do a little bit of this, a little bit of um, interpretation of what he's saying in this letter um, rather than just reading it verbatim. You can read it verbatim. 
from your text. So it's going to be meat or food sacrificed to idols, sexual immorality, eating food that's been strangled, eating food not properly drained of blood. So those are the four things that uh, are laid out in this letter. So all of these are related in a way to idol worship. And so I say that because it's not just a random list of rules that seem fun to James to ask of the Gentiles. All of these things are going to be related to idol worship. So when meat is sacrificed, you may, I've always thought, I remember like, well, if meat's sacrificed, then how do they eat it? But the idea is especially that this meat would be set on fire or some other sort of ritual and that whatever is cooked off is kind of the aroma to the gods. We even see that in the Jewish faith that um, God will tell them to, to burn fat and then the priest can eat the meat, things like that. Um, one of, I think it's Eli's sons get in trouble because they're using this uh, pronged fork to fish the fat out, which is what is the part that is supposed to be sacrificed to God. So basically they would sacrifice this meat to idols and in the Jewish faith, they'd sacrifice to God and some similarities here, but then they would sell this meat sacrificed to the idols in markets. And this is actually something that's going to come up a lot in Acts and in the epistles is whether or not you should eat this meat. Um, that's a story for another day. But basically this meat, um, when it's at saying to abstain from things polluted by idols, he's basically talking about, one of the things he's talking about is food that has been sacrificed to idols. Um, sexual immorality, I think that makes sense to us, but even that has ties to cultic prostitution um, in, as a part of idolatry. So it's not uh, necessarily limited to just sexual immorality in the context of idol worship, but it's, but it's not unrelated. So they're going to ask that they abstain from sexual immorality, which, again, the Greek society was very, very highly sexual and fluid and kind of whatever anything goes. So that's kind of a big ask, honestly, for them. Um, and as far as the eating food that's been strangled and not properly drained of blood, there's a mix there. So the way that they would kill whatever they would sacrifice to idols probably wouldn't be in keeping with Jewish customs of how they were supposed to kill the animal and how they're supposed to drain it of the blood. So it's got a little bit of a mix there that this is part of your idol worship, but also this is just a sensitivity issue. So eating food that's been strangled is something that the Jewish people did not do. And a lot of it was actually related to because an animal that's been strangled is not going to be able to be properly drained of blood. So the Jewish faith, they saw the blood as this um, carrier of life. And so they drained their food of blood. And that was a part of their dietary laws. And for a Jewish person to see a Gentile believer um, eating food that had blood in it, eating food that was sacrificed to idols, things like that. It's not so much that it's inherently wrong as much as it would be a huge stumbling block to those Jewish believers. So I think a lot of what James is writing in this letter is, hey, we're not going to ask you to keep the whole law, but here's some things you could do that would really be a service to the Jewish believers that would help them not struggle when they see these things being done because it is so different from what they've always grown up with. You can imagine that it would be hard for these Jewish believers to see something that was so ingrained in them, not just from a religious standpoint, but from a whole society standpoint, to now see my brother or sister in Christ is eating food with blood in it. And that to me is a huge no-no for all my life. I've not been able to do that. I've not been supposed to do that. So it's this interrelated thing from James of, hey, let's distance ourselves from idolatry in these ways, but let's also be 
sensitive to your brothers and sisters who would struggle if they saw you doing that, who would are really just asking you to give up your right to these foods so that it will be easier for them. So um, that's what they decide. And they send a letter um, to believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, and they basically tell them this is what we decided. And the people are very excited. A, they're probably excited about not having to be circumcised, legitimate, but also I think they're excited because it's this recognition that they're not going to have this extra yoke put on them. There's this recognition that, man, they, our Jewish brothers and sisters feel that the burden of the law was heavy and Jesus has come to free us of that burden. We're glad we don't have to have that burden on us. And it seems that they're more than happy to give in to these requests, even though their right is to eat whatever meat they want, they aren't adhering to the law that would tell them they can't. So really it's within their rights to do those things. But it seems to them from here that they have no problem with it. It says in verse 31, and when they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. So they were encouraged by this letter again, because of the law part, but they didn't seem to look at these requests as heavy. They seemed to, they rejoice at this. Hey, this will help our Jewish brothers and sisters. So that's the big story that comes out of the Jerusalem council and to tie it all up on a bow. They say, we're not going to require uh, Gentile believers, believers to be circumcised because not only do we think that that's difficult for them, but also we recognize that circumcision is a commitment to also adhere to the whole Mosaic law. And we don't want to put that burden on them. And we don't feel like God is asking us to put that burden on them because he's given his Holy Spirit to Gentiles who have believed in Jesus apart from adhering to the law. So they've decided, okay, Gentiles are in. They do not have to become Jews first to be Christians. And the only thing they're going to ask is that they watch out for things that have been uh, polluted by idols, sacrificed to idols, that they abstain from sexual immorality, that they abstain from eating food that has been strangled or eating food that has not been properly drained of blood. And like I said, they rejoice. They're happy about it. So as I read this, I, what I really had to think about as we apply, um, I don't think that any of us particularly struggle with our, should we obey the Mosaic law? If that's you, I'd be happy to chat about that. I, I wouldn't expect that any of us are really struggling to obey the Mosaic law, right? So it's like, oh yeah, what's this have to do with us? Well, A, it has a lot to do with us because these are our spiritual ancestors. We are Gentiles if we are not Jews. So this decision has had a huge impact on us um, down the line from our spiritual ancestors. Um, but two, I think it's a really good time to talk about what it looks like to give up our rights for one another. What does it look like for me to give up what I'm owed, what I feel I'm owed on behalf of another? And let's be real. As Americans, we have a lot of rights. We have a lot of freedoms. And let's be also honest that sometimes we take our freedoms to be the highest of importance in our lives. Our freedoms as Americans in an individualistic society are sometimes the thing that is the most important to us. Sometimes we fight for our individual liberties more than we fight to bear with one another. Often if we're going to struggle, it's going to be, so I have my freedom, not I'm going to struggle so that I can bear with someone else, so I can give up my rights for 
someone else. Like I said, the Gentiles had really, they had no reason to do what was requested in this letter. Other than that, A, they were submitting to the church leadership. Again, whole nother, whole nother talk. But also, B, they knew it would help their Jewish brothers and sisters. They knew that giving up this right to eat this food in this in the way they've always eaten it, they knew that if they give that up, it would be a lot easier for their Jewish brothers and sisters to feel comfortable, to feel like they were unified. Um, because again, these as much as the Gentiles had always eaten these things, and it wasn't really a big thing. It's not like, oh, a big part of our life is we have to eat these things. No, it's just that's kind of how it was. That's kind of how it was for them. Whereas for the Jews, it's like it's a part of our identity that we don't eat these things, that we don't eat food sacrificed to idols, food that's been strangled food that hasn't been properly drained of its blood. So they see this opportunity and they have, again, no reason other than that the church has asked them to, and that the, it will be easier for their Jewish brothers and sisters to do it. There's no instruction from the Lord that they must do this. Um, it's really an opportunity where that they see to give up their rights. And again, as Americans, the American church struggles with laying down our rights on behalf of another. People in the American church struggle with laying down their rights. I am a part of the American church. I recognize that I too have trouble laying down my rights. I'd say the areas where I have trouble laying down my rights are, I think, a little more micro. So I feel like I have the right for the dishes to be washed the way I want, for the laundry to be done the way I want, um, for the dog to be taken care of the way I want, for drivers to act the way I want on the road. Those are some things that just off the top of my head that I can think of where I'm like, I want it my way because it's my way and I think it's the best. And you know what? Everyone should, everyone should have to do that. Everyone should have to listen to what I want, what I think is the right way. But I think over the last year and a half, <clears throat> excuse me, last year and a half, I think we've seen more on a, on a macro scale. I think we've seen more people struggle with laying down their rights for one another than I have in my lifetime. Now I'm in my twenties. I haven't seen just a ton, a ton of life, but this last year and a half for all of us has been unique. But I think there's been a lot of times where we've seen where our fight for our rights has been more important than bearing with one another and caring for one another. And I have especially seen those things when it comes to all the things surrounding the pandemic, whether that be um, masks, other restrictions, um, vaccines, um, whatever it may be. We see it a lot in how each of us responds to just how the pandemic has gone. I've seen it in the conversation over racial justice, and I've seen it in conversations in last year's election. I think that in light of all these things, there have been so many opportunities where we get a little bit lost in the shuffle. And instead of thinking, how can I create unity? How can I bear with someone else? How can I bear with a brother and sister in Christ? We have instead planted our feet firm and said, no, this is my right. And I have the right to do what I want. Um, let's just take, um, for example, for racial justice. You have the right to not be lumped in with every other person that has been racist towards somebody else. You have the right to do that if that's not if that's true of you. You have that right. But what does it look like to enter into that conversation even if you don't feel like you've been a part of what's perpetuated it? 
what does that look like? That's a laying down of your rights to create unity to bear with someone else who has experienced a difficult experience. Let's think about the election. It is your right to vote and to feel strongly about what you vote. And it is your right to do that and not be ridiculed for it one way or the other. But what does it look like to see someone else who votes the opposite way and to say, hey, let's have a conversation about that. Where where can we find unity as brothers and sisters in Christ rather than division based on political party? There have been so many opportunities for us to really like plant our feet firm and insist on our freedoms, insist on our rights rather than entering into conversations that create unity. There has been so much disunity in our country and we've seen it in our churches too. We can't hold up our churches as, oh, well, everybody else in society has been struggling. They've been divided, but look at the church. They're all unified. We've, we've struggled. We struggled. Um, all of our churches have struggled in America and it's tough because when we see this and we see people laying down their rights for one another in Acts 15, people requesting that, Hey, this would be a lot easier for us. Would you be willing and to see people say yes, because they want to hold on to that bond of unity more than anything. I think that's something that we all need to take a look, an honest look at ourselves when it comes to how we create unity. We are not event, we are not ultimately called to get our way and stand up for our rights. We're ultimately called to love God, to love one another, to bear with one another, and ultimately give our rights up for one another. Because if you want to talk about rights, let's talk about Jesus. What were his rights? He had the right to everything. Everything is his. All things were created by him and for him. Through him, nothing, everything was created. There wasn't anything created that was not through him. And he gave up his rights for us ultimately on the cross. So as we look at this story, I hope we can be encouraged by these believers who have gone before us that gave up, that gave up their rights, that cared for one another. And I hope that ultimately we can have that attitude, not just for those in our individual church, but for those in the church worldwide. Thank you.